Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So, at GEICO, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now, it's our turn to share with the GEICO Giveback. A 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. The 27 Club is a podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the award-winning music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season 2 features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jim Morrison of the Doors. And The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all seen episodes of CSI where murders get solved in an hour or less. But the truth is that in America today, if you put a gun to someone's head, you have about a 50% chance of getting away with murder. In many areas, the murder clearance rate is a lot worse. On September 9, 1989, 16-year-old Janie Ward collapsed during a high school party at a cabin in the woods near Marshall, Arkansas. Some friends put her in the back of a pickup truck and drove her into town. They ended up at the bank parking lot, where Janie was pronounced dead at 8.45 p.m. It could have been an accident. That's the official story. But the closer I look at the case, the more questions I have. Did someone get away with murder? I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. cities in America, experts say that a lot of people are afraid to speak out about what they witnessed. And fear of retaliation doesn't just happen in big cities with gang problems. It happens in small towns, too. Small towns also struggle with death investigations. A lot of police forces lack the experience and the budget to deal with complex murder cases. As a result, mistakes are made, and valuable evidence can be lost forever. In many counties, the person who examines you after death is not a medical examiner, but the coroner, who often has no medical training. In Arkansas, you just have to be 18 years old and not a felon to be coroner. In Janie's case, Tom Martin was coroner of Searcy County. He's the one who pronounced Janie dead at the bank parking lot. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy was Dr. Fahmy Malik. He was the chief medical examiner for the whole state of Arkansas and located in Little Rock. Some coroners are working to get additional training and to change the system from within. To explain what happens when someone dies under mysterious circumstances, here's an Arkansas coroner. My name is Joseph Blake. Joseph Blake is the coroner in Stone County. 
He's 22, making him the youngest coroner ever elected in Arkansas. He's very open about the fact that many coroners have no medical expertise and stresses the importance of additional training. He says that his job starts with a call from the sheriff. It all starts normally from the sheriff's office. They call me, let's say it's just a regular home unattended death, which that means nobody was present. Someone walked in the house and found someone laying on the floor. So the sheriff's office is going to call me, and then I'm going to check in the radio and be in route. Normally, by the time I get there, there's normally an officer that's already made it there, or CID, guy that's made it there, or both. And they're there. Kind of, they've kind of done their little investigation part. I'm normally the last person called for anything. Nine times out of ten, that's, that's how it's going to be, because they, they like to do their investigation first. When talking to Joseph, I get a sense that the relationship between the coroner's office and police departments hasn't always been the best. And while he's been the Stone County coroner, repairing that relationship has been one of his top priorities. This is getting a lot better since I've took office, but there's not been a good relationship between coroners and police officers. There's not really... If you was a coroner, you thought police officers were dumb. If you was a police officer, you thought all the coroners were dumb. So it was kind of that narrative. But now it's gotten a lot better with me. I've developed a good relationship with our guys here in Stone County. And so they're normally there. They take pictures, get a lot of information. When I get there, my job is I'm kind of the missing pieces kind of guy. I look and make sure there ain't anything that they didn't miss. I get pretty much the same information they get, who found them, what time they found them, their normal bedtime schedule. Just kind of gather information, do my court report, and then I pronounce them as legally dead at that point. And then we ask the family from there if if everything looks natural, no foul place affected. We'll ask the family, you know, which funeral home they want to choose, and, and it goes from there. I'm actually the normal um natural that's very easy i know it don't sound like a lot every death every death i'm thinking you're going to the nursing home every death is looked at as a homicide until proven otherwise every death is looked at as a homicide until proven otherwise but in Janie's case ron said that coroner tom martin didn't even bring up an autopsy until ron insisted Tom instead just asked which funeral home the family wanted to use. This is odd, given that the paramedics had already said it was a suspicious death. Janie's funeral is on September 15th. After Janie's death, Ron starts recording and taking notes everywhere he goes. The funeral was no exception. He wrote down that 500 people attended the funeral and said that a lot of them looked into the open casket and saw injuries on Janie's face and body. We read in one of his notebooks, more trauma showed up on her body things that were not noticed the night of her death. What showed up on Janie's wrists were what appears to be restraining marks and bruises on the back of her hands and a splinter about a quarter of an inch long under her right thumbnail. 
Ron had photos taken of Janie at the funeral to document what he saw. When we talked to Janie's sister, Crystal, and her mom, Mona, Crystal also remembered additional injuries on Janie. One thing I'll never forget is, and I was 11, when I saw Janie there the first time in the coffin. And I pointed this out to Dad. Janie had claw marks in her face. She had nicks, different places that were claw marks. You don't get that from falling off of a porch. She had a bruise all the way down. She had bruises down. It was fingernails where her somebody neck. had clawed her, scratched her face. And that's cat fight. Oh, yes. She had a splinter under her thumb half an inch long also. That was never spoken of or addressed in the autopsy. But we saw it in the casket at a funeral. I saw it. Ronnie saw it. We all commented on it. Why was that not in the autopsy? The state's chief medical examiner, Dr. Fahmy Malik, performed Janie's autopsy at the state crime lab in Little Rock on September 11th, two days after she died. The cause of death was listed as an upper spinal cord and neck injury from landing on the back of the head. The manner of death is listed as undetermined. The autopsy mentions a single small bruise, bluish red, circular in shape with a cleared center on Janie's lower back, but says nothing about the injuries Ron says that he and others saw at the funeral. Dr. Malik wrote, the neck is loose, but no apparent external injury is present. To Janie's parents, this doesn't make sense. How could someone have such a catastrophic injury falling off a porch step that was less than 10 inches high? Also, Janie's body was clean when it arrived in Little Rock. There was no mention of the dirt or debris or any answer to why her body could have been wet. Today is Friday, 27th, 1989. This tape is Ron Ward at the Arkansas State Crime Lab in Little Rock with his friend Robert on Friday, November 27, 1989. Ron had requested the autopsy report. After several months of waiting, he said all he received was the first few pages. Determined, Ron heads to Little Rock to get the report himself. Well, you need help us get a copy of the autopsy report, are Ah, uh, well, here are you needing an autopsy report on? He's the one that needs it. It's for his daughter. My daughter? Okay. And what's your name? Donald Ward. I'm sorry? Ronald Ward. Ron, and what's your daughter's name? Her name was Olivia Jane. It was listed, I think, probably in your records as a Jamie. When Ron shows up at the office, he's told by the receptionist that Dr. Malik is in the middle of an autopsy elsewhere in the building. She motions for him to sit and wait for Dr. Malik to get back so he can authorize the release of the autopsy report. Ron sits in the tight waiting room. Then the phone rings. Dr. Malik invites Ron back to his office to explain the autopsy results. I wish to tell you uh, my sympathy for the loss of your daughter. Uh, our children do a lot of things we don't know about. I have photographs for the body. If you like to see it, I see it. Sure. If you don't, don't. You like to see it? <laughs> 
Dr. Malik shows Ron photographs and an x-ray of Janie's spine. This part is the junction between the skull and the bone. Didn't become loose and the bleeding was here when she landed. The cause of death is an upper spinal cord and neck injury. Hyperextension, sudden hyperextension can snap the neck like that. Dr. Malik clarifies it's a hyperextension injury. He says that the neck snapped back and then snapped forward with enough force to cause hemorrhaging in the upper neck. He says it's severe whiplash and compares the injury to one you'd get if you were rear-ended in a car. When you tell me if she lived, what would happen? Now, luckily, if she lived, she would be quadriplegic. Why it is undetermined? Let me explain this to you, because I want you to hear it firsthand from me. Dr. Malik explains why he left the result as undetermined. Is this Jamie feeling her own? Nobody touches the girl, it will be an accident and death. But if somebody just pushed her, it will change the story. Uh, it may be homicide and homicide different. It's a bit hard to make out. But here, Dr. Malik is explaining that if someone intended to harm Janie, that's homicide. But there could also be negligence. So here, the difference between accident and homicide is a very thin line. The difference between accident and homicide is a thin line. And because I don't know, I can't. Uh, the bottom line is, he can't rule it either way. He also couldn't tell Ron about the missing white pinstripe shirt, or why Janie's body was wet and covered with sand and dirt. This is my purpose to show you an order not to listen to rumors. Here, he's saying he doesn't notice any bruising that would indicate mm. that someone attacked Janie. There nobody, I, I didn't see any evidence of beating. The girl landed in her back and snapped her neck. There were some scratches in the back, as you noted, but otherwise, no, no. Nobody touched the girl. Dr. Malik seems very polite in the tape. He's sympathetic to Ron when Ron says he hasn't been getting information from the police. But, uh, See, they haven't told him anything. Sure. And he, he'll ask them, and they tell him that he can't. And they say, you don't need to know that. Which to me is a sorry way no, of running an operation. He is the father. He should. He yes, had, uh, that's why we came down here. Let me, Mr. Sewell, let me tell you something else, too. The law, the way it is written, is there's some cruelty to it. They tell you the autopsies are confidential. But I'm a father, and my mind. daughter, if this happened to her, I would like to know. You see what I mean? I know. Some people stick to the law and tell you the law, but we should be human with each other, you know. I know that at that funeral home, I know when you saw her, she looked this way. When I saw her, they had a different shirt on. Ron asked if he could take one of the autopsy photos. May, may I have this? Dr. Malik hesitated, 
but said yes. You want Yes, Later, Ron wrote in his notebook that what he walked out of the crime lab with that day would become very significant toward helping piece together the events of 9989 in the death of his daughter, 16-year-old Olivia Jane Ward. We'll be right back. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So, at GEICO, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip-sync star. Now, it's our turn to share with the GEICO Giveback, a 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. I'm poring over autopsy reports, trying to find similar cases that could explain what happened to Janie. The photo Dr. Mallet gave to Ron shows a dissection of Janie's spinal column. The column is made up of 33 vertebrae protecting the spinal cord. Around the neck, there's less space between the bone and the nerves, making it much more vulnerable. An arrow points to the injury. Dr. Malik examined Janie's stomach. He wrote, The stomach contains 10 ounces of digested food matter in which tomato particles are encountered. No oranges are noted. He mentioned oranges because that's the fruit that the party host Jay had soaked in rubbing alcohol for the PGA punch. People at the party saw Janie chewing on orange slices. But the contents of the stomach were not tested. So if Malik only made a visual inspection, it hits me that orange slices soaked in red punch would look exactly like tomatoes. He noted that it didn't appear that she had any other medical condition that would have caused her to drop dead suddenly. Janie's blood alcohol level was 0.05, or the equivalent of around one shot or glass of beer. No trace of drugs was found in her system, which means that at least some of the rumors can be put to rest. The evidence points to the fact that it wasn't an overdose of drugs or drinking that killed Janie. According to the serology report, Janie was not pregnant and no blood or semen were found. There are still so many things that are unexplained. Like, why didn't the crime lab test the residue on Janie's body, which Ron insisted was from the creek bed? Also, one of the paramedics on the scene put a bag around Janie's hands. This is normally done so the material underneath the fingernails can be tested later for DNA. But in Janie's case, this was never done. This seems to be a huge oversight because fingernails can give all kinds of clues. They can point to the cause in a natural death case, and they can also show if there is DNA from a fight. A few weeks after visiting Dr. Malik at the crime lab, Ron received a copy of his daughter's x-rays in the mail. But Ron insisted that the x-rays 
were not the same ones he saw at the crime lab. The x-rays looked like they had been tampered with. When we met with journalist Mike Masterson and Janie's mom, Mona, this was obviously something that still baffles them. The side x-ray, the one where they blanked it out all the way up her neck, which was not the one they showed you when you went to the crime lab, which didn't even have the official stamp of the crime lab in it. So obvious they were tampered with. You know, the very area that was supposed to be x-rayed was whited out. You know, when you first saw it, Ronnie said he made the statement, that's what killed her right there, separated. So what was the purpose of an x-ray if it's all whited out? The lateral x-ray shows the side of Janie's skull, but her entire neck is covered by a hazy semicircle, basically a white blob, in the bottom part of the x-ray film. The crime lab seal is also not on this view of the x-ray. When we asked Mona about Dr. Malik, she made her feelings clear. And he wasn't very smart. You know, he wasn't smart at all. He was so incompetent. He didn't know what he was doing. It was obvious. He was, it was so obvious he did not know what he was doing. I just wanted to note, in case you didn't know this, uh, Family Malik, he not only botched my sister's case, but many, many. While he was, you know, in the Bill Clinton administration while he was the governor of the state of Arkansas. Fami Malik's controversial career and the many botched autopsies during the years he ran the Arkansas State Crime Lab are the stuff of nightmares. By the time Dr. Malik performed the autopsy on Janie, he'd been working in the crime lab for about 10 years. At that point, he had performed thousands of autopsies. Ron collected articles about Dr. Malik. One headline from a yellowed article written in 1990 accused Dr. Malik of lying on the stand, tampering with evidence, and manufacturing convictions. And the wards wouldn't be the first family appalled by Dr. Malik's autopsy results. Families joined together and formed a group called Victims of Malik's Infuriating Testimony. The acronym for that group is VOMIT. The author of that article from 1990 was Rod Lorenzen. I asked him what made Malik so problematic. He had no oversight from state government. His decisions affected things like insurance payouts, you know, on life insurance policies. He was in a position to do favors for um, politicians if they needed something done in their district. For example, if they needed a decision on an autopsy to go a different way, my impression was that that would get done. And so he just had a lot of power and freedom in how he decided cases. You know, that was the one thing. There just wasn't anybody watching the guy. I don't think he, my impression was that he was not very good at his job to start with. And yet he was there for for several years, mainly just because there was no oversight of that position. In his article, Rod refers to Malik as a tool of the state and points out that in Arkansas at the time, the medical examiner held the sole power to determine the cause of death. This differs from other states, where county coroners also have some input in decisions and provide evidence of foul play as suspected. But in Arkansas, in the late 80s, Malik ran the crime lab. No one really knew what happened with the evidence coroners gathered and sent to the crime lab, and if it was ever used in making decisions. Rod told me that while he was writing about the crime lab, he reached out to Dr. Malik multiple times, but that Dr. Malik always denied requests to speak to media. Then, 
after Rod wrote his pieces about Malik, Malik's attorney threatened to sue him. Rod said when he was writing about the crime lab, he got creeped out. Malik's employees were kept on a tight leash and afraid of speaking out against him. When I was interviewing one of, one of the guys that worked for Malik, they just called themselves meat haulers. This guy told me that in some cases, Malik would come into the lab and he would know something about, say, a victim that had come into the lab. And this guy told me that Malik would already have his mind made up about what the cause of death was going to be. Malik's controversial rulings include the June 28, 1985 death of Raymond P. Albright, a 50-year-old man from Mountain Home who was found in his yard dead of gunshot wounds. Malik ruled the death a suicide, even though Albright had been shot five times in the chest. One finding, the infamous Boys on the Tracks case in Saline County, was particularly controversial. On October 23, 1987, 17-year-old Kevin Ives and 16-year-old Don Henry were run over by a train near the town of Alexander. Dr. Malik ruled that the boys, who were best friends, had been smoking pot and just happened to fall asleep on the tracks. But a second autopsy indicated that Henry had been stabbed in the back, that Ives had been struck on the skull, and that both boys probably had been placed on the tracks unconscious, maybe already dead. The case would later be linked to high-level cocaine dealing through an airport in Mena, Arkansas, involving state officials at the highest level. Two years after Janie died, in 1991, Malik quit among a flurry of allegations that he botched autopsies and after losing the support of then-Governor Bill Clinton. He applied for a position in Guam, but his employment was put on hold after officials there found out about all the controversy. Malik eventually ended up in Clearwater, Florida. He died in August 2018 at the age of 85. When you ask people in Arkansas about Dr. Malik, he's considered a pariah and a statewide embarrassment. But when we talked with journalist Mike Masterson, he had another perspective on Dr. Malik. He said he was someone that he once considered a friend. Oh, I was going to ask you about, I know you told me a little bit about your relationship with Fami and how he was good at his job, but then something when happened. First came, yeah. But when he came to Arkansas, he replaced a medical examiner named Stephen Marks. Well, Stephen had been canned and I think ended up down in Texas. Fami started, we became friends. I met him. Fami started telling me about things that he thought as a journalist I should know about involving the medical examiner's office. Well, the first one was a girl who had died in the lake, hot springs. It had been ruled that she drowned. He suspected that wasn't true. So I wrote a column. I'm not calling, but back then I was writing the stories. This case Mike is describing would end up with the body being exhumed and the cause of death changed from drowning to being shot through the head. And that was just the first case that Mike wrote about. Anyway, cases like that, there were several, and after they dug up six bodies, <laughs> uh, Bill Clinton said, okay, we're not going to dig up the entire state of Arkansas. Now, I say this only because Fahmy Malik was, at that point, struck me very much as someone interested in truth and a clean medical examiner's office. So another reporter and I 
After that, dug into the medical examiner's office and found all kinds of stuff wrong with it under Stephen Marks. Malik seemed to be, although later in his career he had some some pretty dark periods until he finally left, but during that period he seemed to be trying to help that family. I think he felt for him. He was a father himself. He could. He was a smart man. He was from Egypt, but he could see the truth. This is a, this case stinks to high heaven. Whatever his motives were, Mike said that Dr. Malik inherited an already corrupt crime lab. So it's no wonder that the wards would be suspicious of any result. In their eyes, Janie's autopsy could be another one that was botched or intentionally mishandled to help a political ally. In the years that he covered Dr. Malik, Rod ended up writing a few stories about Janie. I met Mr. Ward, I guess probably 20 years ago, at a, at a restaurant. And he's kind of showed me a file that he had uh, kept on his daughter. And he showed me the autopsy photos. And it was just very difficult to believe that this girl died by falling backwards off a porch 10 or 12 inches high. I mean, it seemed ridiculous. I remember really, you know, talking with Mr. Ward. It was he was just haunted by the whole thing. I mean, he was—you could just see in his eyes that he was just a tortured individual. And he, gosh, he—he he made an incredible effort to try to, you know, see if he could—he could get at the truth of how his daughter died. Before Ron Ward visited the crime lab, he knew about Dr. Malik's reputation. And when he received the x-rays, the family grew even more suspicious. So we have a medical examiner who some people think is complicit in covering up cases for powerful people in Arkansas. And we have a crime lab that already has a long history of corruption. So here's where Ron made this leap. Would Dr. Malik be complicit in a cover-up of a murder that impacted some of Marshall's elite, like the parents of the kids at the party, especially the children of the town's doctor, and a judge who delivered Searcy County to Bill Clinton? To an outsider, this could all sound a little paranoid. But as a great PI once said to me, paranoid people aren't always wrong, especially in Arkansas. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm a writer, activist, and comedian. I wrote a book called How to Be Black, gave a TED Talk about white people calling the cops on black people for no good reason, and I feel like we're having a moment in the U.S. right now. You probably feel it too. When Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, something in America broke. Where this moment goes, we can't say yet, but right now, something big is happening involving race, and in particular, policing. So... I'm gonna try to explain it. From the COVID connection to who's allowed to protest to what defund the police actually means. When Mitt Romney, the man who tried to keep Barack Obama's second term away from us, joins a Black Lives Matter march. When NASCAR bans the Confederate flag. When Donald Trump, of all people, encourages cops not to choke people. We're having a moment. You can listen to We're Having a Moment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Janie's case is officially closed on February 14, 1998. 
1990, just five months after she died. The prosecuting attorney, H.G. Foster, sends a letter to the wards to say that the investigation found no evidence of foul play in Janie's death. On November 5, 1990, the ward family files affidavits calling for the arrest of the prosecutors assigned to the case, the coroner, the deputy sheriff, and Dr. Mallet. The reason? Conspiracy, perverting, and obstructing justice and helping cover up the facts in Olivia Janie Ward's death. They also submitted a petition with 1,200 signatures, calling for a grand jury and an appointment of a special prosecutor to look into the case. Their request is denied. The judge writes to Ron, In my opinion, there is nothing in the evidence reviewed by me that indicates that anyone deliberately murdered your daughter. Two years later, Malik was gone from the Arkansas State Crime Lab. Arkansas brought in two independent medical examiners to review a dozen of Malik's controversial autopsies, one of which was Janie's. And Janie's was the only case reviewed where they ended up changing the cause of death on the death certificate. Of all the cases we looked at, I think this one's the most difficult. Um, I'm not sure what happened. Ron and Mona spoke with the two pathologists when they were in Arkansas. Like he always did, Ron recorded the conversation. And over the years, this tape's sound quality has seriously degraded. Well, we're not asking you to determine what happened. We're asking you to determine what didn't happen. We know she did not fall off of the sanity equivalent porch and sustained all the injuries and die. We know this. So we, we don't expect you to tell us what did happen. Okay. We just want you to tell us that what didn't happen because we already know this. So, so that we can go from there. See, we want a grand jury. We have to know. The main thing the family takes away from this meeting is that by looking at the autopsy report, the pathologist can't say definitively what killed Janie. They say that some of the circumstantial evidence is concerning, like the fact that she was wet and the sand on her clothes. They suggest that another investigation could yield more answers. The most surprising thing these pathologists say is that they are not convinced that Janie even died of a spinal injury. There's everything that's been presented to me, all the evidence that I have, all the autopsy findings, the photographs that I've got, do not, do not indicate to me that this child died as a result of neck injury. I can't tell you that. So you asked me to tell you what didn't happen, the way it looks right now, that didn't happen. Okay. okay. And what are your suspicions? My suspicion is that if she did indeed a sudden cardiac event could have been the cause. And they say they can't rule out drowning. Drowning is often a diagnosis of exclusion. It's not considered a cause of death until everything else is ruled out. But Mona and Ron are adamant about the x-rays. They want to know what the pathologists have to say about the lateral view of the x-ray, where Janie's spine looks like it's been whited out. First, the pathologists emphasize that they are not radiologists, so they are cautious about their opinions on the x-ray. They also say that the x-ray images and the photos they received of Janie were photocopies and very unclear. But they don't find the white blob in the foreground of the side view of the x-ray suspicious. You find that white obstruction there? Oh, that's her shoulder. They suggest the blob could just be her shoulder and explain that it's difficult to situate a body on an x-ray table. Also, they're not suspicious that there isn't a crime lab seal on the x-ray. But then, 
One of the pathologists says this. I have a certain suspicion and agree with you that the lateral film that you showed me the other uh, isn't your daughter. I think it may be a male. He says, I have a certain suspicion the lateral isn't your daughter. In fact, I think it might be a male. So did the crime lab even give the wards the correct x-ray? The pathologist changed Janie's death certificate. Cause of death is no longer listed as a neck and spinal injury. Instead, just like the manner of death, it's undetermined. But the wards couldn't convince officials to do a second autopsy. At least, not yet. In 2004, an independent medical examiner based in San Diego agreed to review Janie's death. He would come to a completely different conclusion. He said that Janie was murdered. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Helen Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and L.C. Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salee. Available wherever you get your music. Please visit us at HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So at Geico, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now it's our turn to share with the Geico Give Back, a 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. I'm Baratunde Thurston, and I feel like we're having a moment. When Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, something in America broke. I'm going to try to explain it. From the COVID connection to what defund the police actually means. When Donald Trump encourages cops not to choke people, you know something's different. Listen to We're Having a Moment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.